All right. Thank you so much, David, for leading us in a time of worship. Well, this morning, again, if you're just joining us a little bit late, my name is Pastor Mike, and this is Image Church OC in Ladera Ranch, California. And on Sunday mornings, we are currently going through the book of Exodus. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up now to Exodus chapter 12. And we will be looking at verses 37 through 51 this morning. Exodus chapter 12, verses 37 through 51. So we'll begin by reading the passage as a whole. I'm going to pray and ask for God's help in discerning God's truth in this text and that we would have hearts prepared to receive it and live by it. So let us read the text together. Exodus 12, beginning in verse 37. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, and a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we just pray that you would bless the hearing of your word. Lord, I pray that you would touch my heart, my mind, and my lips, that I would be able to speak forth your truth in faithfulness to Christ our great Passover lamb. Lord, we pray that in this time of pandemic, when so many things seem uncertain, that we would trust in you as the God of the Exodus, the God who is able to deliver his people out of any situation. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us this morning. We pray that your word would be a word of power. Lord, we pray you would transform us from the inside out. Lord, I also pray if there's any listening that 
do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. They do not know Jesus as their Passover lamb. Lord, I just pray that you would touch their hearts and minds right now. Lord, I thank you so much. If they're listening to this, that means you're already doing a work in their hearts that they would be open-minded enough to give your word a hearing. And so, Lord, we just pray that whatever questions they might have, whatever objections they might have, whatever bad experiences maybe they've had with Christians or other churches or, or whatever it might be, Lord, we just pray that you would overcome those things and reveal that it's all about Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray we would all encounter Jesus this morning. I pray your Holy Spirit would open up the eyes of our hearts and that we would be able to receive what the Spirit has to say to the church today. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters joining me all over the world, not just from the United States, but from all over the world, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We believe you are gathering a people for yourself, and we are marked out simply by this, faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for making us one people in the blood of your Son, and we just pray that you would form us and prepare us for the work you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning, again, we're continuing our study of the book of Exodus. And for a little bit of context, so Israel has been in Egypt for 430 years. Uh, they've been slaves for a large portion of that. And the time has come for God to deliver his people. And part of God's way of doing that was to choose a man. It was to choose a leader. It was to choose the man Moses to empower him and to commission him and to speak through him as a mediator to Pharaoh. Of course, we know at the very beginning, Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, no, I don't know who Yahweh is. I don't know who this God of the Hebrews is. And he probably was mocking. Uh, he's like, why should I respect the God of a bunch of slaves, to be honest with you? Obviously, your God's not that powerful, or you wouldn't be a slave under my rule. So Pharaoh responded, as many do, with pride and ignorance. But we see God began to reveal his power. And he didn't just do it in order to set Israel free. He also did it to expose the falsehood of all the gods of Egypt. And I believe there was an evangelistic reason behind that. There was an apologetic reason behind that. Many times when people read the Old Testament, because it focuses so much on Israel as a, a nation, as an ethnic group, Sometimes people get the wrong idea that the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, didn't care about other ethnic groups. But that's not true. As a matter of fact, I'd say that's exactly why God did the other nine plagues and not just the tenth plague. God was exposing all the gods of Egypt as being false for the purpose that those in the land of Egypt that worship false gods, that worship pagan gods, would turn from idols to the true and living God. And so God did what he did in order to not only save Israel, but in order to save those who were in Egypt as well. Now, that's a fact many people don't realize. Even many believers who read the Bible, they miss this point. And I'm going to show you how this morning in the very text in front of us, this exact thing is actually taking place. 
Now, besides the significance of this text for the story of the Bible and the story of the Exodus, what practical relevance does this narrative have for us today? And I think it's extremely important. Uh, right now, and again, I don't know what the situation is necessarily for those of you that are uh, in other countries, you're outside the United States, it would, I would love to, to hear from you and hear your experience. It would be very um, helpful and enlightening for me. Um, and even talking to different believers outside of California, their situation in their state could be uh, radically different from mine. But one of the things that this pandemic has brought into sharp relief is the contrast between religious freedom and civil magistrates. Religious freedom and civil magistrates. There is a relationship between the two, but what kind of relationship is it? How, how and to what extent can religious communities, in particular Christian communities, how and to what extent can we relate to the state? How should the state relate to us? Should they be one and the same? Should there be an identity between civil law and religious law? Should they be completely separate? These are fundamental questions that you and I are facing today. And they are being faced right here in Exodus chapter 12, verses 37 through 50. Furthermore, if you are familiar at all with the history of the United States, you're familiar with the founding documents, the Constitution, the, the Bill of Rights, um, you'll see that a distinction was made. And again, I don't think the United States is a perfect nation, um, but I think there was a lot of wisdom. There was a lot of God's common grace, whether the founders were Christians or not. There was common grace that gave wisdom to the shape of the Constitution. And one of the evidences of that wisdom is the distinction it makes between religion and civil law. They're related, but it also says they're different. different. When it says, Congress shall pass no law respecting the establishment of religion, it's not saying there's no relationship. There is a relationship. In that very statement, there is a relationship. But what it is doing is it's taking civil law, which includes everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a Buddhist, a Hindu, an atheist, doesn't matter. We're all a part of the civil law. And what the civil law did in the Constitution of the United States is it made a distinction between civil law and religious law, and it protected religious freedom. And I actually think that you can find, perhaps not identical, but you can find the genesis of that here in Exodus chapter 12, verses 37 through 50. And so not only for non-believers out there, non-Christians, but even for us as Christians, I think with all the things the government is doing, whether that's the federal government or the state government, and we're kind of wrestling with, well, well, what can we do? Or what, what should we not do? What does God want us to do? What are they? What, what do I want to do? Because that might not be the same as either the government nor the Bible. So as we're navigating all of that, it's important that we allow biblical principles to drive our thought process and therefore our decisions. And so we're going to look at some of this right here this morning. So let's begin by looking at verses 37 and 38. It says, Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Now, 
So Ramses was one of the great store cities of Egypt. And when you say a store city, it was a supply city. And that would include military supply. So it was a very important city. And it is one of those cities that the Israelites and perhaps other Semitic groups built themselves under the auspices of the nation of Egypt. And they left Ramses and they journeyed probably southeast to the city of Sukkot. Now, some people say it's not just a city, it's probably a district, but in either case, it appears to be a border location, a border city, a border district. So Israel has not quite left the land of Egypt yet, but they've already begun their journey. Now, it says about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Now, this is indeed a multitude. If you kind of do the math, um, this is men. It's talking about men. So if there's 600,000 men, well, you figure um, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 2 million. And again, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy that God gave to Abraham that he would bless him and that his offspring would be a multitude that is the sand on the seashore, so would Abraham's offspring be. And so we're being told that is exactly what God did. But here's where I think there's an important spiritual lesson for you and I this morning. Sometimes we believe we can only be blessed when our outward circumstances are also blessed. How many of you believe that this morning? You can only be blessed. Blessing for you is equals outward temporal blessing. Now, I think that is very, very common. And Israel certainly often felt that way. The feeling was we're blessed if the powers that be are ruling in our favor, then we'll be blessed. And if they're not, then we're cursed. If the economy is doing very well, then we're blessed. And if the economy is not doing well, then, then we're cursed. If my spouse is behaving themselves and they're treating me with the respect and dignity that I think I deserve by virtue of our relationship, then I am blessed. But if they are not treating me with the dignity and respect I believe I deserve, then I am not blessed. That is perfectly normal. That is a normal way of thinking. But I want to challenge it because it's not biblical. To be blessed in a biblical sense is first and foremost not about your relationship to anything else in all of creation. The true definition of blessing is right relationship before your creator. That is what blessing truly is. Now, again, for, for those of us that if you're not Christian, if you don't believe in God, and to be perfectly honest, even if you're a Christian, you and I battle this. I think we battle. We can have days where we believe this. We say, amen, Pastor Mike. Even if all the world is going to hell in a handbasket, if I know I'm right with God in Jesus Christ and I have the inner shalom peace of God, then I'm blessed. But I also think as Christians, if we're honest, there's other times where when things are going wrong outside, I do not feel blessed. I'm like, what are you doing, God? You're cursing me. Look at this situation. 
But what I want to show you is that God is able to bless his people even in the midst of outward trials. God is able to bless you in trials. It's not about always getting out of trials, then you're blessed. It's not about everyone else doing what's right, the government doing what's right, your spouse doing what's right, your children doing what's right, your employer, your clients all doing what's right. No, we are given a sure foundation for blessing, and it is the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, where am I getting this in this text? Notice that in the land of their affliction, in the land of Egypt, where they did not have a government that was ruling in their favor. I know, again, me as an American, I'm, I'm kind of upset about some of the decisions that the government is making. But I have to admit, when I compare my situation to the situation of Israel in Egypt, I've honestly, I've got it really good. But what I can see here is with Israel in a far worse circumstance than I'm in, and I, I think that's true for most of you. Again, per, maybe some of you outside the United States um, can speak differently, and I'm open to hearing that. But for those in the United States, we are in a much better position than the Israelites were. And yet I want you to notice something. God fulfilled his promises to them in the land of their affliction, in bondage with the government, Pharaoh, working to destroy them like that was his goal. It wasn't just incompetence. It was wickedness. His goal was to destroy God's people. And what was the result? What was the result, friends? Answer me. What was the result of Pharaoh's effort to destroy the people of God? They grew and they grew and they grew and they grew. They multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. God's faithfulness was not trumped by the wickedness of man. Let me say that again. God's faithfulness cannot be trumped by the wickedness of man. Israel is multiplying. They were blessed. They increased so much so that the text says about 600,000 men on foot besides children. So again, somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 million people. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Apart from God, you would think that being slaves, having a dictator, a pharaoh such as the one here who is deliberately enacting policies of infanticide against Hebrew males, there's no chance for Israel. There's no way. And you would think rightly, the right thing for Israel to do would be to pick up a sword, pick up a spear, pick up your plowshare, go, go, attack, uh, go attack Pharaoh and the Egyptians, turn on them, uh, try to get a start a coup and get a change of... You would think that's the only way to victory. And yet we see that God in his faithfulness granted Israel victory without firing a shot without raising a sword. God delivered his people and blessed them in the land of their affliction. Friends, I believe that God is doing that now and I believe he can still do it yet in the future. That even with this pandemic, see, I believe how you and I approach this, not just what we believe in here, but how we approach it in here is vital to our witness and walk as followers of Jesus.
Do you believe that unless everything outside is right, I am not blessed? Unless everything outside is changed, I cannot grow. I cannot be blessed. I cannot be multiplied. I cannot be fruitful. If you believe that, friends, then we are putting ourselves in a position where we are not trusting in the God of the Exodus. The God of the Exodus is able to deliver. He is able to cause us to be fruitful in the land of our affliction. And I have seen that I, with my own eyes. I have seen God do this in this time of pandemic isolation. I'll call it an exile. I've seen, I remember when I this first happened, I mean, I was in, I'll be perfectly honest with you, 24-7 anxiety, 24-7 anxiety, and it was physiologically felt. I remember my heart rate was up, and again, it wasn't like I was denying the Lord in my mind and, and all this and that, but it was, there was a real sense of anxiety, and it, it seemed like it didn't matter what I did, how many times I read my Bible, how many times I prayed, what great encouraging Christian friends I talked to or what news programs I watched that usually made it worse. Um, but it didn't matter. It was just this anxiety. And I just remember thinking to myself, oh my goodness, how's the church going to go on? How are we going to do ministry? Is, is, is everyone going to give up on Jesus? Is everyone going to say, well, church mattered to me when we were able to meet, but now that we're not, um, I've got other things to do. I've seen the opposite, friends. You have been a living witness and an answer to my prayers. The way that you have gathered, the way that you have made it a priority, the way that you have not forsaken the Lord, you have not abandoned the teaching of the word, you have not abandoned praising and worshiping the Lord, you have not forsaken praying together and seeking the face of the Lord. God is answering prayer. And more than that, I'm seeing, and some of you listening, you are an answer to prayer. You are a living testimony of grace that God beyond the borders of our local church, our physical geography, it made a place for some of us to come, and it also meant others could not come. They were excluded by geography. And I am seeing that God is going far above and beyond the borders of our local church and he's reaching the worldwide body of Christ. And he's even bringing those that did not know Jesus as Lord and Savior into a saving relationship with him. I bear witness to the truth of this text this morning. I solemnly swear that the God of the Exodus is able to bless his people today in their exile, just as he did for Israel those thousands of years ago. And so I am thankful for the God of the Exodus. I am thankful that we can be fruitful wherever we are. Again, that does not mean we don't do what we can do to, to change uh, unjust laws. It doesn't mean we don't pray against them. It doesn't mean we don't have conversations, including hard conversations and dialogue about what the best thing to do practically is. But what I am arguing for this morning is a complete and total biblical conviction concerning faith in the God who is able to bless even in our trials. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. So verse 38 says this, and this is kind of the key setup for the question I said, how and to what extent can Christians as a religious community relate to the civil magistrates, the civil law around them? Verse 38, 
a mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds and a great deal of livestock. Um, maybe underline that those two words. Your, your translation may have something else. But verse 38, New King James says, mixed multitude. What is a mixed multitude? A mixed multitude is a rev-rav, a rev-rav. And that means it is a diverse body of people, meaning more than just ethnic Israelites left Egypt that fateful day. It appears that in God's moving upon Egypt, in God's exposing the, the idolatry and the falsehood of all the gods of Egypt and the impotence of their pretended gods, that converts were one. Those who were not Israelites join with the people of Israel so that Israel coming out was not just Israel. Remember what I told you. God was doing what he did in the 10 plagues, not just to set Israel free. If so, he could have just done one plague, the 10th plague. God even predicted to Moses that Pharaoh wasn't going to bow to any of the nine prior plagues. It would take the tenth plague. So if God knew that, why'd he do the other nine? You have your answer now in chapter 12, verse 38. God did not just have his eye on Israel. He had his eye on all the nations of the world. If you are not an ethnic Jew, you can know from whatever nation or people group you're a part of. And maybe you look back in your history, and maybe some of you do have some Christian history. For some of you, you have no Christian history in your, your nationality, your ethnic background. But I have good news for you. God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, never took his eyes off your people. He always had an eye on the nations and his goal stated in his promise to Abraham was in your seed, singular, Christ, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God always cared about the nations. Part of evangelism is proclaiming the true God and dismantling the false gods of a culture. Those gods may differ in various times. You can have a culture such as in the West where people say they don't even believe in gods, but functionally they do have gods. They, they worship sex and they say, sex is my identity. That is what is ultimate because think about that. Whatever defines you, defines your worth, your value, your destiny is your God. So even though Western secular people might say they don't believe in gods and superstitions, but then they say, the way I feel about sex determines all of my worth and, and my core identity, they have made a god out of sex. Eros, Aphrodite, these are things that our culture worships. So to be effective evangelists for Christ today, friends, we a, have to present who Jesus is. We have to present Jesus because there's wrong ideas about Jesus. And some people don't have virtually any idea about Jesus. So we proclaim the true and living God. 
And yet we also, in order to do that, just like we see in the Exodus, in the 10 plagues, the first nine are about dismantling the false gods, the lies, the idols of any particular culture. And that means that you and I have to pay attention to our context. We have to pay attention to our culture. We, we don't want to be so detached from our culture that we have no idea what it is they worship. We have no clue. We are so isolated, so segregated that we have no idea the difference between somebody in America and somebody in Pakistan or somebody in Somalia or somebody in France or wherever it is. We do need to do the hard work of getting to know people, to know what makes them tick, to ask them questions. Who are you? What do you believe? What do you believe the purpose of life is? What is your authority for telling you those things? These are a part of preparing people for the truth of the gospel. And as I shared last Wednesday, I believe that is what the late, great Ravi Zacharias did. I believe that one of the things that makes him great, and if you've never read Ravi before, you can listen to his lectures on YouTube for free. He's got some great books, uh, one that we're going to start for a men's group called Jesus Amongst the Gods, uh, another book, The Grand Weaver. But one of the things I thought he did so well is he was an evangelist, but unlike a lot of other evangelists, he really took the time to dismantle the false gods, the the idolatrous ideologies of various cultures. And so I think we have a precedent for that in the very narrative of the Exodus. So verse 38, a mixed multitude, more than just ethnic Israelites, came out of Egypt. Now, by the way, by highlighting verse 38, and highlighting it wasn't just ethnic Israelites that came out. It's actually going to make sense and give context logically to what's going to come in verses 40 through 51. Because if you didn't understand what was just said in verse 38, that a mixed multitude went up, including more than Israelites, you might think to yourself, why, why all of a sudden in the middle of heading out of Egypt, and they're not even quite out, is God talking about who, who, what foreigners and temporary workers and day workers and, and resident aliens and uh, people with a visa? What, what does all of that have to do with Passover? Why is he bringing it up? I'll tell you why. Because they're already a part of the people of Israel as they are leaving Egypt. Again, whether these are people uh, who've, who've become a part of the outward civil nation uh, via intermarriage, or again, perhaps other Semitic groups that had been brought down into Egypt as slaves like Israel also, or Egyptians themselves. There's evidence it could have been some Egyptians. If you read carefully the narrative of the nine plagues prior to the tent, you'll notice that when it got to the hail coming down and killing the, the oxen and the livestock, it actually says, and some of the Egyptians who feared the Lord, they listened and they took their livestock in. So again, it, that didn't necessarily mean they converted, but they began to respect the God of Israel. And there's certainly reason to believe, along with verse 38, that mixed multitude could mean that the Lord won some Egyptians to himself. How encouraging is that? 
Who are the uh, Egyptians, so to speak, in our day? Who are these other groups that might not be Christians now, but when they see who Jesus is through your life, when they see the way the church is responding to this pandemic with love and wisdom and concern and compassion, when they see the mighty way in which our God preserves us and leads us out, that they too might want to join with us. Who are those people? Maybe those are individuals. There's individuals watching your life. Maybe a family member, maybe a friend, maybe a neighbor, maybe a coworker, maybe somebody you've met somehow through social media. Maybe there's individuals that are watching your life. And through seeing how God works in your life, they're going to say, hey, I, I want to go where you're going. I want to follow you. Perhaps as a church, again, people, they were watching their lives destroyed. They, they built their lives on money. They built it on their career. They built it on the stock market. They built it on trust that the government would always do the right thing at the right time. And all of that has been devastated. And so they've been looking, they've been searching for a foundation that is sure and true and they can build their life on. And they got connected with a local church. They got connected with Image Church or any other great church out there. And they're like, hey, I don't know if I'm fully Christian yet, but I believe that the God of the Exodus is with you guys. I believe he's doing something in your community. I believe there's truth there. I believe there's substance that I was lacking before, and now I'm seeing it. I believe God wants to bring in a mixed multitude. But how do we deal with that? Because that's both a blessing and a challenge, isn't it? When people who are unlike you come in, that's I think that's a blessing, although some people will push away. We have to be careful we don't do that. On the other hand, how do you welcome people in and, and yet maintain your identity? That is a very, very hard thing to do. It is always proven to be a hard thing to do. But we're going to see some biblical principles as to how we might do it. Look at verse 39 now. It says, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. So here we see the historical reason why God instituted the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Again, we were initially simply given a religious rite. And sometimes we're, giving, we're given religious instructions in the Bible, and we're not quite sure what, what the practical significance is. You know, whether it's singing songs, uh, meeting for, you know, the teaching of the word, coming together as a congregation, uh, doing various things. Outsiders might look at that and go, I I'm not fully sure what's going on. But I assure you, there is always a rhyme and a reason to why God does what he does. And in this instance, he, he gave the religious rite first. He gives the instructions regarding unleavened bread. And you might think, unleavened bread doesn't taste as good. Why are we doing it? It's, it's less food. Uh, why would we do that? Nobody uh, wants to make unleavened bread. If you have the time, you always want leavened bread. So why are we doing this? At the time, the answer is, I don't know. I just know God told me to do it, so I'm going to do it. So Israel's making unleavened bread. And now we see why. There was a reason, the historical reason why God gave the specific religious rite that he did regarding the absence and purification of leaven from the home and making unleavened bread is when the time came, 
for God to set his people free, it was going to be so fast their head was going to spin. Sometimes God feels like he's taking forever. Can I get an amen to that? Does it ever feel like God is taking forever? Sometimes I think in my life when I've been praying for something, I've been waiting for something, I've been in a a hard season, and it feels like 400 years. It just feels like, God, you are incredibly slow. Like incredibly slow. What are you doing? And then all of a sudden, in a moment, my head spins, God is moved, God is acted, and, and you're in a place you thought wasn't even possible. So that's exactly what happened. When the time came, the appointed time, the divinely appointed moment came for Israel to be set free, it came so fast it made their head snap back. But I think there's also a spiritual lesson in here as well. That's not simply to say that much of life is waiting in the waiting room we talked about last week. And when God acts, he can do so radically quick. So always be ready for the Lord to act. But I think there's something else involved. I want you to notice here in this verse that when God acts, it is not always comfortable. Notice that when the time came for them to go, not only did they not have time to leaven their bread, it says they were they did not even have time pre- to prepare provisions for themselves. In other words, when God delivered, it wasn't fully comfortable. And let me just quote to you from one Christian scholar writing on this verse. He says this, quote, By this example here in verse 39, we are taught that God's blessings are always mingled with certain inconveniences lest too great a delight should corrupt the minds of the godly. Listen to that again. We are taught that God's blessings are always mingled with certain inconveniences, lest too great delight should corrupt the minds of the godly. See, God is not against comfort, but he is against comfort if it becomes your idol. If comfort becomes your primary decision-making process, God is against that. You have sinned. You have made an idol. You've taken a good thing, being comfortable. It's not a sin to be comfortable. But if you make that your test for truth, truth is simply that which I'm comfortable with. And that's how many people in our culture today are. Truth is not ultimate objective truth. It is simply that with which I'm already comfortable. And any truth that makes me uncomfortable, I deny as untruth. For us, maybe as believers, we we accept Jesus as the truth. And yet, are you willing to follow him? If he calls you to go somewhere, if he calls you to do something, if he calls you not to go somewhere, if he calls you to not do something, what makes your decisions for you? Is it comfort? Is that the number one thing? Well, Lord, I think you're calling me to leave right now, but I would not be comfortable. Then you have made an idol out of comfort. If perhaps the opposite is true, you're not comfortable staying and you're like, oh, I need to leave. I'm just not comfortable. I just need to leave. And God says, honey, son, daughter, I'm calling you to stay and be faithful. And you go, well, I'm not comfortable. So I got to go. I'll I'll do this if it's comfortable. 
Again, comfort is not wrong, but we cannot make an idol out of comfort. I like the idea that here, when God acts, when he moves, it's not going to be all easy. It will not be without inconveniences. And the inconveniences shouldn't frustrate us terribly because they're actually designed by God to remind us that this world is not our home and we are not meant to worship comfort. We are meant to worship God. We want our hearts to go wherever God goes, to do whatever God wants us to do, to not do what God wants. Do not, friends, brothers and sisters, make an idol out of comfort. Some of the most uncomfortable times in my life have been the most spiritually profitable. Some of the most comfortable times in my life have been the least spiritually profitable. I think you and I need to be very careful especially in the Western world, especially in the United States. People from all over the world are wanting to flee to the United States, not just because of dangers abroad, although that's definitely true, but simply because of the level of affluence that is here. We do indeed worship comfort. Make no mistake. If we're going to do an apologetic of the Exodus, if we're going to be like a Ravi Zacharias who preaches the gospel but also exposes the idols, then friends, one of the idols you and I must expose today in the United States of America is the idol of comfort. Comfort is not to be our idol. If I can get comfort and worship the Lord my God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength, then amen. That's a good day. But if I have to pick between being comfortable and worshiping the Lord my God, there should be no debate. I will give up my comfort to worship the Lord my God in spirit and in truth. And friends, I realize apart from the spirit of God, I don't believe you can do that. I don't believe you will make that decision today to abandon your idol of comfort, to be uncomfortable if it means faithfulness to the Lord. But guess what? I believe that not only can the Holy Spirit come into your heart and enable you to do what you think you can't do, but to do it with joy. As David once said, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. In other words, he's like, I deliberately want to become a little bit uncomfortable for the sake of glorifying God, because then I know I'm not making an idol out of my comfort. The Lord is my God. So friends, let us make sure that we are not worshiping at the altar of comfort. We must worship only the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up every heavenly comfort to be a savior to us. Let's look now at verses 40 and 42. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And it is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. That is the night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. Now here in verse 40, it says, children of Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years. Now, some people have suggested that this is a contradiction in the Bible. And they do so on the basis of Genesis 15. 
And if you look at Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, be sure that your descendants will be slaves in a strange land for 400 years. And so some people on that basis have said, well, it says 430 here, and it says 400 in there, we have a contradiction. Well, I think there's at least several possibilities. Uh, number one, it could be simply that 400 is a round number. We do see that at times, and it's actually very clear in numerous instances where we're not given an exact number, we're giving an approximate number, and elsewhere a more exact number is given. And again, giving a round number is perfectly legitimate if that was the author's intention. So if God intended to give a round number, that is not an error. That is exactly what God intended to do. We use round numbers from time to time. Now, granted, there's context where we want an exact number, but there's on other contexts where a round number is perfectly sufficient. Now, that's one answer. That's not even actually my main answer. My main answer would actually be this. It's very carefully the description around that stated number. It says here that Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years. That's actually a different description from Genesis 15. What God said to Abraham was not how long they would be in Egypt. He didn't say that. He said how long they would be slaves. That's a different number. So 400 years, they were slaves. Here, it doesn't say how long they were slaves. It says how long they were in Egypt. Now remember, the difference is this. Israel first came down into Egypt when Joseph was second in command to Pharaoh. And so for approximately 30 years, Israel sojourned in Egypt, but they were not slaves during that time. So one of the ways is to reconcile these two numbers, besides simply saying the one is a round number and approximate, is to say one specifically gives us the years of slavery, 400, and the other gives us slavery plus even the years of peace and prosperity, which we know they had, and that number being 430. So nevertheless, either case, Israel has become fully accustomed to the culture of Egypt. At a practical level, I think that's what's important. Um, this was no uh, weekend or holiday stay. Israel had been in Egypt generation after generation. They had become familiar with the culture of Egypt, the language of Egypt, the religion of Egypt. They had been exposed to all of it. And again, so when God is giving all the laws that you're going to see later in the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, some people get the mindset that, oh, the God of the Bible, he's just this, you know, hard taskmaster God, and you got to do all these things. That's what it's about. Actually, you got to remember at the very least, one of the things God is having to do with all those rules is not simply to say, this is who God is and this is how he wants you to live, but it is to undo all the wrong thinking from the last 400 years. See, they were in what the New Testament would call the world. The world taught Israel who you are and what your identity is and who you're going to be and what is a life worth living look like? What is the meaning of life? What are morals and ethics? What is the basis of them? Uh, what should a civil government look like and how should it relate uh, to the practice of religion? The world says what it says, but God wants to speak into our lives and he wants to begin to renew us so that we are shaped 
more and more, not by Egypt or the world, but by the word of God. And so remember, friends, that's what God is doing. They've already been told all these other things. So God is having to work through them and to refashion Israel as a nation into his image. And notice verse 42 says, It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. Now notice here in the Old Testament, we have a, an, a, a historical event performed in the past, unrepeatable in nature, and yet Israel's future identity is not primarily going to be about any future thing that they do, as important as those things may be. But for Israel, the central and defining feature is always looking back. The people of God in the Old Testament were to always see themselves as the people of the Passover. They're not just the people of the promised land. They're not just the people of the temple or the city or the military or anything else. They are the people of the Passover. And they are called to remember this perpetually throughout their generations. And it is going to anchor their civil life. Notice that. The religious life anchors the civil life, not the other way around. One of the things you and I have to be careful of as Christians is that our civil political life and affiliations do not replace our worship of Jesus as being defining of our core identity. We have to be very careful. We do not let our political and civil affiliations replace Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, as our core identity. That is what is being established. And we have to remember that. That is the importance because there's a relationship between our religious life, who we are as the people of God, who we are as Christians, and the greater, broader civil world, which can include many non-believers of many different kinds. So we need to make sure that there's a distinction between the two. Too often, people professing Christ will often give up their core religious identity for outward markers, things of this world. But as Christians, Jesus, first and foremost, is our identity. Before anything else, I am a citizen of heaven. I love my country. I love the United States of America. I am very thankful to get to live here. And yet I still must say and will till the day I die, I am first and foremost a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I am first and foremost a Christian. Before I am white, before I am male, before I am American, before I am anything else, I am a Christian. And I hope and pray that all of you can say the same thing. Because we're constantly going to be challenged. People are going to say, no, that shouldn't be your core identity. It should be something else. It should be in this, in that, and the other. And whatever value we may assign to those things, and I'm not saying they are without value, but they must pale in comparison to our religious identity. That is, we are the people of the book. We are the people of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. 
I love what the commentator Matthew Henry says on this verse. He says, This first Passover night was the night of the Lord much to be observed, but the last Passover night in which Christ was betrayed and in which the Passover with the rest of the ceremonial institutions was superseded and abolished was a night of the Lord much more to be observed when a yoke heavier than that of Egypt was broken off our necks and a land better than that of Canaan set before us. Theirs was a temporal deliverance to be celebrated in their generation. This is an eternal redemption to be celebrated in the praises of glorious saints, world without end. Amen. So I love how Matthew Henry shows that just like the Passover was to be defining of the core identity of Israel throughout their generations, so now Jesus the Messiah, the true and better Passover lamb, it is looking back to him. That is defining of who we are. It's nothing that I'm going to do in this life. It is not about what I'm doing. It is not about what you are doing. It is not about what this country is doing or, or whatever the current events are. That is not defining of our identity. But rather, like the people of Israel, we are called to look back. We are to remember the upper room. We are to remember when Jesus, who was rabbi, Lord, master, Messiah, teacher, girded himself with the towel of a slave and washed their feet. And then he died upon the cross for the sins of the world and rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven and sends the Holy Spirit to unite all of its God's people to him so that we share in the victory of the Lamb. That is the event we look back to. And what we say is, that is who I am. I am defined as one whom the blood of the Lamb has saved from sin and death. That is who I am. I am a sinner saved by grace. That is who I am. I belong to God in body, mind, and spirit. I live ultimately for a kingdom that is not of this world, the heavenly Jerusalem that will come when Jesus himself returns to this world as its rightler king and Lord. So that is where I, our identity is, friends, and we cannot give that up for anything. No advantage of this world should be able to pry our surrender and submission to the gospel story of how Jesus was our Passover lamb. Now, as we get into this final section, we understand why it was such an important issue to talk about who could celebrate the Passover and who couldn't. Because it answered the question of, what if people want to be a part of our broader civil life but they don't want to be a part of their our religious life. What if they are not of our ethnic group, but they want to embrace our faith? What do we do about these things? What is defining of our identity? Very important in the day of the Exodus. Very important in 21st century America and even the world. So look at verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. Now, again, this may go against many modern people's sensibility, 
but it says no foreigner can eat of it. And if you look up the word foreigner in any Hebrew lexicon, you'll see that a foreigner means somebody who is not ethnically the same. Any person who is ethnically non-Israelite, that's a lot of people, is not allowed to just eat the Passover. So there is a distinction being made, and it is, and I'm going to argue biblically right, but hang on, I'm going to argue there's got to be a distinction between who the people of God are and who they aren't. There has to be a distinction. We cannot just get thrown into a religious blender, hit smooth the smoothie button, and blend us all up so that our religion is just some broad civil religion in which we say all roads lead to God or non-God or whatever in the world it is. We don't want to do that. But now here's something that's radical. It was not unlike any of the other gods of the ancient world to say that first part of verse 43. Uh, from what we know, all the gods were generally ethnic gods. They were the gods of this people, the gods of this land. They were tied to the land. They were tied to the land, blood and soil, your people group, your land. So that first part wouldn't have come across weird to any ancient reader. Oh, yes, of course, you're not from our ethnic group. You can't be in, right? You're, there's a distinction. But watch what happens in verse 44. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he can eat it. Notice that even though there's a distinction between the ethnic groups, one who is of a different ethnicity can become one with ethnic Israelites. They can become one. Why? because of what I just spent time telling you, that there is an identity given in Christ that is deeper than anything the world can give. If your identity is in anything outward, if it's in ethnicity, well, then some people are going to be in and some people are out. If it's in your gender, well, then some people are in and some people are out. If it's in your nationality, well, then some people are in and some people are out. There's always going to be some some imbreachable barrier, not just distinction, distinction's not wrong per se, but there can be no crossing over. There is a fixed barrier none can cross over. But notice what the faith of the Bible offers. Religion, when many people say religion divides, what we see here is religion can unite. If it is in the one God, if it is in the one God who made all the peoples of the world, who made all the earth and determined the boundaries and habitations of all the nations of the earth, if the plan of salvation is for all the nations, then this God can provide a way in which no matter what your background is, no matter who you are, what country you come from, whether you're male or female, this, this color, that color, this ethnicity, that one, we can all be one how. Well, here in verse 44... It says, but everyone's servant who is bought with money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. Again, so if they are willing to undergo circumcision, even though they're not ethnic Jews, they are counted as being one of the ethnic Jews. They are counted as being their people group. So again, the first thing assumes that the obvious, we all know, hey, you're from this group, I'm from that group. Okay, the question is not, are we different? The question is, what do we do about it? And what is our basis for proceeding? And what we see here is it's not wrong to make distinctions between groups per se. The main moral question is, the main spiritual question is, 
What do you do about it and why? And what we see here is there is a way provided. Religion here is a uniter of people groups. It need not be a divider. It can be a uniter. And here, again, if the non-ethnic person accompanying Israel out of Egypt wants to celebrate Passover, then what they do is they undergo circumcision. And by doing that, they are saying, I believe in your God. So one of the key things I must point out, and this is, this is a key hermeneutical principle, that's a fancy word that means a, a, uh, a maxim, an idea, a statement that we want to carry with us in our, in our bag of interpretation whenever reading the Old Testament, and we see a lot of talk about ethnicity. The main reason ethnicity matters is because in this time, it reflected and had a relationship to God or the gods. In other words, it's not so much ethnicity, but what ethnicity can represent that the Bible is concerned with. If being non-Israelite didn't just mean you, you had a slightly different shade of skin, it probably meant, and often this was true, it meant you also worship false gods. And the primary concern of the Bible is with the worship of God. It's not so much about the differences between people per se, but only those differences as they relate to a true or false understanding of who God is. So for a non-ethnic Israelite to come in and, and try to celebrate Passover and not undergo circumcision, what they are, they're telling a lie about God. That's the issue. They're saying, oh, I, I, I belong to the people that God saved, but I'm saying that I don't have to be covered by the blood of the lamb. I can just sort of, it's, it's again, it's this idea of, oh, I can be a Christian without accepting Christ. Oh, I can be saved or I have a religion. I think all roads go. I'm going to exclude myself from Jesus, but I want to be included in your religious community. I want to be hired as a pastor at your church, even though I don't believe the Bible is God's word and I don't even believe there's a God and etc. etc. That would be the idea. And what we see here is religious identity and religious freedom comes first. And that is, again, if I may make application, is one of the genius elements, wise elements of the Constitution, that a distinction is made between the civil law, the civil magistrates, and religious freedom. Because religious freedom needs to be free to be first without being forced upon by outward forces. And so while we may have great degree of flexibility in the broader culture to do this and not do this and to even have certain laws where we don't agree with them, but I can agree to still live with you uh, in, the, in the broader culture. And yet there must be a place. That place is the church, friends. There must be a place, the church, where religious identity, where we can tell the truth about who we are in relationship to God is permitted. And that is what we have to be on guard for because again there's always forces trying to impinge on that we have to be careful we don't get you know fearful and 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 see every challenge or, or thing that we don't like as as being something that attacks our religious identity but neither should we be ignorant as though religious freedom is just going to be a given no matter what i absolutely don't believe that I believe apart from a mighty move of the Spirit of God that we call revival, more and more you are going to see religious freedom attacked, I believe, 
in the United States. It, it could be like this, kind of up and down, back and forth. But in general, there's a growing anti-Christian sentiment. And by Christian, I don't mean broad cultural Christians that don't go to church and they don't read the Bible. They don't, they're not a member. They don't love and serve Jesus. But if you hand them a survey, they'll check Christian. I'm talking about legit Christians who actually obey the Bible and commit their lives to the ministry of the gospel. I believe more and more there will be attacks on that. And again, when we have broader hiring practices, for instance, and, and they say you can't discriminate on the basis of religion. In a general civil sense, I can actually find biblical reasons why I can say, okay, that, that's permissible. Maybe I, maybe I feel differently, but I, I can be okay with that generally, civilly. However, when they then say to a church, a religious community, that you cannot discriminate who you're going to hire as your spiritual leader on the basis of religion, they are now going beyond the civil shared public space and they are now impinging upon the religious community which is formative of our identity. Because for us, we are not, for, for Christians, hopefully if you've got it right, if you've got the Bible right, you understand the gospel, you are not a citizen of this country first. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You belong to Jesus. That is the most important citizenship you have. And we do need to guard it. We do need to guard it. This out here, we will try to shape it for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. The way I love my neighbor is not by voting the way they want me to vote necessarily, although I think love listens to them sincerely. But love would be me voting my values. If I don't win, I don't win. I can live with that. But when you start impinging upon our religious community, which is number one formative for identity, then we have a problem. And so again, the Constitution sets up these religious freedoms. I believe those are good, but we must be careful about moving forward and how we can see. But there's a difference between the religious community and the civil. We see it not only in the Constitution, which as good as it is, is not the Bible, so it's not inerrant, inspired, nor infallible, but the Bible we actually see, which is inspired, inerrant, and infallible, we actually see a distinction between the civil law and the religious law. So, uh, no foreigner shall eat of it, but if they're willing to profess faith and circumcision was a means of doing that, then they may eat of it. Now look at verse 45 through 47. A sojourner and hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Now, that might sound strange because we just read in verse 43, if, if the foreigner is willing to undergo circumcision, they can. But then he comes back in verse 45 and says, a sojourner and a hired servant cannot eat it. So what we're actually seeing is there's different Hebrew words used in these various verses. And they do provide legal terms, legal terms regarding levels of citizenship, their relationship. So basically what we're seeing is somebody who says, I want to belong here. I want to be a citizen. I want to belong to you and I'm willing to take an oath and I'm willing to submit to the laws of the land. If someone is willing to do that in Israel, they are able to do that. But if someone is just here temporarily, they have no intention of belonging here. They, they cannot in good conscience, uh, you know, 
pledge, you, you know, an oath of, of citizenship or anything like that. And they're only planning on being here a week or a few months or whatever. And then they're going back to what they consider to be their true home. That's what's being referred to in verse 45. So over and against someone who says, I, I want to make your people my people. And remember that famous statement comes in the book of Ruth. Ruth, who was a Moabitess, a non-Israelite, uh, after her husband dies and her mother-in-law, Naomi, who's a Jew, is going to go back to her land. She says, I want, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. So if someone wants to do that, there is a way forward for them here in the Hebrew Bible. They can become a full-fledged Israelite. However... If they are simply dwelling temporarily and they cannot give themselves fully uh, as citizens to Israel, then they cannot eat of it. There is distinction. Again, so as much as there is this um, in inclusive embrace of anyone who will come to Christ, anyone who will come to Jesus, we're not going to turn away anyone because of their background. We, we, where, whatever you are, wherever you are, there is nothing that can keep you coming from Christ except your rejection of him. That's it. And if you come to Christ, you belong to the church. And all churches should receive all believers as members. It shouldn't be, oh, well, you know, you're, you're from this background, you're from that background, oh, you have, you have a lot of money, you have no money. It, it should never be that. If you are in Jesus, you belong. But the church must be careful to not, again, throw everyone into a blender and pretend we're all the same as though our religious differences don't matter. Again, I'm not against the, the broad understanding of the word tolerance. Absolutely. I think we should tolerate uh, people of different views. But sometimes by that word is not just meant the dictionary definition of the word, but an ideology. And sometimes the ideology of tolerance in Western culture today means the elimination of differences. That the only way that in this ideology of tolerance that we can tolerate people is if you are not allowed to disagree and you have to believe everything the same. Again, I think there can be a version of tolerance where we agree to disagree. That you can be somebody who totally disagrees with me about Jesus and yet I, I don't believe I have to hate you. I, I still, I believe I'm called to love you, to be a good neighbor to you, to try to do the best I can um, to treat you as I would want to be treated. I believe that's my calling. But I also do not believe I am called to give up my identity. So while we can be tolerant in the one sense, and I, I think tolerant, to be honest, is actually a poor substitute for love. It's one thing to tolerate your enemies. It is far another to love them. The Christian was not called to merely tolerate their enemies. We were called to love. The best the world can produce is tolerance. And very often tolerance is not even that. It is, it is hatred of difference and is seeking to exterminate any kind of unique religious identity. And so we have to be very careful of that. There is a way in which we want to be able to embrace everyone. And yet for those who reject Jesus, we have to be able to make a distinction. And in a practical note, that would include our hiring practices within the Christian church. Now, what's beautiful here, again, because you've heard me talking about Jesus as the Passover lamb and pointing ourselves there, and sometimes people will go, well, you can't do that, pastor. This is the, uh, the Jewish people, ancient Israelites, and they didn't believe in Jesus and all that. Actually, I have biblical warrant to say that this is all about Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 46. 
It says in one house. So there's one people. That's why there's only one people of God. There's not two, three, four. In one house. So unity. God is bringing unity to his people. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside. Listen to this. Nor shall you break one of its bones. This is highly significant. There's no dietary reason that I know of why they couldn't have broken the bones. It's, it's Breaking the bone on a lamb shouldn't make the meat taste any different. Shouldn't make any difference whatsoever. So it's very clearly a matter of religious right. Why did God instruct them when they killed the lamb? You figure, well, the lamb is being killed. It doesn't care if its bones are broken along the way. There's a religious reason because it points to Jesus. And the Apostle John wrote and referred to our verse in front of us this morning in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 31 through 36. Listen to it as I read it aloud. Therefore, because it was the preparation day before Passover, very thing we're talking about, that the bodies should not remain on the cross for the Sabbath, and that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled quote not one of his bones will be broken what verse is john quoting about jesus in john 19 it is the verse in front of us this morning in Exodus chapter 12. The Passover lamb in the Old Testament was always looking forward to its fulfillment in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. And it is in Jesus that we are one. We are united in him. Outside of Jesus, friends, you and I are not united. Again, I believe that the more we are united in Jesus, the more difference we can have in a local church and get along in love. But the more we make the criteria for unity something other than Jesus, you begin tacking on new new things. Well, if you if your opinion of, of Proposition 71 is this, and if you you think this, and and if you get along with these people, and if you do this, well then we're not we're not one. Friends, our unity never was, is not, never will be anywhere but the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Our unity is in him. We find our basis for loving each other and getting along and belonging to the people of God. Not because you and I agree about every possible thing. That's not going to happen. That's actually what cult groups do. Cult groups are manipulative and controlling so that no one can have a different opinion. Everyone is uniform. They're exactly, they're little copies of each other. In the body of Christ, there is unity and diversity. 
there's unity in Jesus, and we're also free to be different. And how does that difference work? Because difference without unity is division. So how can we be different and yet one? The answer is the triune God. God is one and three, and through the work of Jesus and the Spirit, we are invited into fellowship with the God who is one and three, a God who is one and diverse at the same time. Unity and diversity can be found nowhere in the world, not in the public square, not in secularism, not in the ideology of tolerance, not in any other religion of the world, but solely in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Spirit. Lastly, verses 48 through 51. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native born of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Notice this. There's a distinction between the civil law, somebody who wants to follow Israel out of Egypt, Again, because maybe they don't believe in Yahweh fully, but here's what they know. I know that we were slaves in Egypt, and I know we're being set free right now. And I just, and I don't know what that looks like, but I want to go where you're going. Maybe some of them, it was more religious in nature. The gods of Egypt, our false gods were exposed. And, and I want to know more about this God, since I just realized all these things I was living life for are not the meaning and purpose of life, and they cannot be trusted. I want to journey with you and see if I can learn who, who is God? What is the meaning and purpose of life according to this community, this group of people? So there's going to be people who come alongside the church. Uh, sometimes people um, talk about these as seekers, people who are maybe not Christians, but they're coming to church. They're listening online. They're joining with us now. They, they have a Bible. They're reading. They, haven't, they cannot say, I believe in Jesus as Lord, and yet they're at your church. And, and they're maybe maybe when this the worship lyrics are up, they're looking and they're not singing. And somebody goes, hey, why aren't you singing? And it's like, I, I can't do that out of sincerity of heart yet. But I am thinking deeply about everything that is being sung. Again, there's going to be people. And do we make room for them? Can we, both in the church and in the broader culture, make room for people who, who are not like us, who are not quite ready to call Jesus Lord? I believe the biblical answer is yes. We can make room for them. We can love them. We can have a relationship with them. We can welcome them them in to show us, hey, this is who we are. This is what we believe. We love you. Uh, we're a loving people. This is who we believe God is. And yet, as I said, we can do all that. We're inclusive of, of anyone. And yet the only exclusivity we have is not whether you're, you're white or black or male or female. It is Jesus Christ. So notice it says, when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover, presupposing there's a chance that there's someone who's sojourning with you, but they don't want to keep the Passover. There's not a law that says you have to keep the Passover. That would be to prescribe everyone has to be a Christian in America. Everyone has to go to church or you're going to get fired from your secular job working in a dental office. Uh, do, you see, do you see the difference? Uh, again, the founding fathers that came over to the United States, it's so good to know their historical background. They came out of largely the Church of England. And if you're not familiar with the Church of England, again, there's some wonderful, amazing, evangelical, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving believers in the Anglican Communion. But it's also 70 million people. 
and you have a secular head. So the king or queen is actually the head of the church. The civil government is, is over them and is able to pass laws establishing uh, religion, though, though that's definitely changed quite a bit. And then you have many people who've gotten involved who uh, might even be clergy and yet don't believe in, in Jesus as Lord. So the founding fathers were leaving the Church of England and what they did not want was a president or a congress or, or uh, judges that could enforce religion on everyone. Say you have to do church this way. You have to do uh, worship before the sermon and not the sermon before worship. And we take attendance at church. And if you miss another Sunday to go to a football game, we're going to fire you from your job and you owe double in taxes. We wanted to make sure that couldn't happen. So what we have here in this text, friends, is an opportunity to trust in the saving power of Jesus in the gospel and to believe that when God saves, he can save just like that in a mighty powerful way and that we don't have to try and, and coerce people into following Jesus. God is able to move so powerfully, people will want to come and see. And they will want to say, can I journey with you for a while? Can I listen to what you're saying? Uh, can I ask you hard questions? Because I don't know if I agree with this and that and the other. And do we as Christians, are we able to bring them in and say, we have a place for you. We understand that you, you don't have to become fully like us in our faith in order for us to love you and to be able to dialogue with you and bless your life in the broader civil public square. I believe we can. And I believe that's our calling. We are called to be salt and light. We are called to be a blessing to our pagan neighbors. Have you forgot to be a blessing to your pagan neighbor? Have we forgotten in this time of exile that it's not just about me and me getting what I want, that it's about being able to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, a light to the pagans, and that God is able to move in our midst so mightily and powerfully that others want to come and see. We're going to find that some will journey with us, and yet they, they don't profess faith in Christ at that point. And while we will show them we love them, then there is a place for them. But again, they could never truly be one, not because we're rejecting them, but because they're rejecting Jesus Christ, the only basis for Christian unity. And for those, again, that ultimately do want to receive Jesus as Lord, doesn't matter where they come from or even what they've done, what sins you've done this morning, Jesus is welcoming you in to belong to the people of God. So in closing, just these three key ideas. Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb who not a bone of his body was broken. This story points to Jesus. In fact, in some ancient Greek manuscripts, Jude chapter 1 or Jude verse 5 actually says, I kind of like this. It actually says Jesus brought Israel out of Egypt. Jesus is the one. And again, theologically, that is certainly true. Jesus is the Passover lamb of whom not one of his bones was broken. So if you want to be set free this morning from bondage to sin and death, from bondage to meaninglessness, because let's face it, the secularism of the Western world provides no reason to live. No wonder people are drowning themselves in substance abuse and in sexual deviancy and everything and just creature comforts, consumerism. No wonder 
I would say it is because the only thing that can satisfy you is the Passover lamb. He alone can save you from sin and death and meaninglessness in this world. So I would just commend to you, if any of you do not know Jesus, journey with us. Listen to our story of how the blood of the lamb has saved us. Journey with us. Ask us questions. Hear our Bible messages. Listen to the lyrics that we sing. Interact with us online. We encourage you, if you're not quite ready, to make that commitment to Jesus, there's still a place for you. Journey with us. And if any of you are there and and you've journeyed and you've seen that this Jesus who have saved this community, I want him to save me too. Then we have a prayer we would like you to pray this morning. So if any of you would like to receive Jesus and Lord and Savior this morning, please go ahead and repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I believe that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. I believe that the Bible is God's word. I believe that I'm saved not by my good works, but by the finished work of Christ. I want to receive Jesus as my Passover lamb. I pray you would forgive me, wash me, cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I pray you would take out my heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. I pray that my heart would now beat for you and that you would give me your Holy Spirit Help me to live a life glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, if you've prayed that prayer with us this morning, I just want to encourage you to send us a message here on Facebook. Let us know that you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, We would like to follow up with you. If you don't have a Bible, we would like to send you a Bible. Um, Again, if you don't want to send through Facebook or if you're not, if you don't have a Facebook account, you can email me at information at imagechurchoc.com, information at imagechurchoc.com. And just let us know where you are. Again, if you're a seeker, you're somebody, you you didn't profess Jesus as Lord, but you're interested, you've got questions, maybe you've got hard questions, be happy to answer uh, those for you to the best of my ability and certainly to pray for you. For those of you, again, if you did accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, again, we would love to hear from you. But again, friends, I just want to encourage you that God is on the move. I believe this this sort of uh, exile, this mini exile that we've been in in isolation is coming to an end. The Lord is bringing bringing us out. Uh, The latest news that I shared is um, supposedly the governor of the state is releasing uh, guidelines for church reopening tomorrow. That's wonderful. So I'm going to be watching that closely and following uh, up on that. And then uh, logistically, there's things we'll just have to work out. So again, we'll have to cross those bridges when we get to them. We don't know exactly what that'll look like, but we'll be meeting all those challenges along the way. And we'll do our best to keep you informed. 